Sophocles won 24 of the 30 literary competitions he entered, placing second in the rest. Of his 120-plus plays, only seven survive. Eratosthenes calculated the Earth's circumference with breathtaking accuracy. As chief librarian of the Library of Alexandria, he oversaw the collation of hundreds of thousands of works, but not even his own on the measure of the Earth survived the library's progressive destruction by war, negligence, and cultural revolution. Rashid al-Din Hamadani created the first world history, taking advantage of his location at the crossroads of a Mongol empire with access to European, Arabic, Persian, Indian, Mongol, and Chinese scholars. Hamadani, not wanting his masterpiece to be lost to time, arranged to have the work copied in Arabic and Persian every year and distributed. But his patron's death and royal intrigues cost him his station and us his work. No complete copy survives. Several scholars, dizzy by the thought of humanity's lost knowledge, tried their hand at a wistful, melancholy catalog of what might have been. Thomas Brown wrote Museum Clausum, an imagined inventory of remarkable books, antiquities, pictures, and rarities of several kinds, scarce or never seen by any man now living. Besides Seneca's epistles to St. Paul, this hidden library housed history's most famous box, within which was the perfume of infection responsible for the 17th century plague of Milan. Of course, there's a difference between the tragedy of lost knowledge and the tomfoolery of what was willfully forgotten. It is the latter which financial market participants specialize in. John Kenneth Galbraith lamented that there can be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts so little as in the world of finance. James Grant concurs, laconically noting that progress is cumulative in science and engineering, but cyclical in finance. And so, in episode 45, the Rashid al-Din of the Eurodollar will help us unforget the three reflations since 2007 and how they compare to present day. But first, we review why the U.S. Treasury bill yields may be so low. This is all about the bills, and you want to make it about football first. And you know, this is a place to talk bills with with consoling Buffalo fans. We're going to talk about different bills. That's right. We could be talking about the Buffalo bills, which are very important. But even more important are U.S. Treasury bills. That's Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners. Jeff, seriously though, the bills, Treasury bills, are very important to the whole financial system. And uh, I would think that if things were going well, better, or improving, they should be decreasing in price as we sort of leave the safety of treasury bills. But that's not exactly what we're seeing. There's a mainstream explanation for that. And then there's the Jeff Snyder Eurodollar University explanation. We've got three articles we're going to go over. The first one is, let's talk bills again. You posted it on January 29th at Alhambra Partners. And you start out by pointing out something that I often hear in the YouTube comments section, and is that people are convinced that there's at least a section of people that are convinced that the Federal Reserve and central bankers are 
bad people and that they're out to shackle the American financial system for their own nefarious purposes. And you make the point, well, they make so many mistakes and they're so well accredited. How do you reconcile the two, if not by saying conspiracy? Yeah, if you keep screwing up and screwing up in big ways and repeatedly over and over and over and over again, I mean, you know, you can understand why people would say it has to be on purpose because you could think, you know, an institution that we're told is this important, this big, this accredited, all of these things, and yet it can never seem to do whatever, even the smallest thing it aims to accomplish. You have to wonder, I mean, sometimes you think, well, maybe these people are doing it on it, it can't be an act, right? It, it has to be on purpose. And then you go back to September 2019, like we do all the time, and you think, well, if I was an evil genius trying to do, make create harm, what would I do differently than what Jay Powell did in the wake of the repo, uh, repo rumble back in September 2019? And the answer is you wouldn't do anything different. So it's really hard to argue these people are not trying to trying to harm the system on purpose because in this case at least they did the one thing that created the most weakness or the the, the biggest choke point for collateral in the repo system and derivative systems too when they did this not QE which intentionally bought only treasury bills at probably the worst possible time so I mean it's understandable why people would think this has to be this this can't be just uh, utter incompetence time and time again, it has to be on purpose. And so, not, you know, Japan is on QE number 24 or so, according to your uh, unofficial count. And they all start running together. And already for me, we're at QE6 in the United States, and they run together. And I think not QE is QE number five. And just remind people, they were telling us it was not QE because they didn't want us to think to unleash the animal spirits, but they were buying treasury bills. And then tell us why did it turn out to be uh, the plot of an evil genius or incompetent technocrat? What happened in March? Well, you go back to summer of 2019. Remember the yield curve had inverted, at least the part of the yield curve that the public pays attention to, the two tens in places like that. Yeah, in March Suddenly that inverted. Yeah, right. and then, you know, we get into July and August where it started to look like, oh, my God, there might be a recession in the U.S., mm-hmm. an unexpected recession, which, of course, the Federal Reserve responded with, nah, it's no big deal. We'll do a couple rate cuts because that's all we really need. This is just a soft patch that we're going to work our way through. Do you remember all the news stories at the time explaining why this is different? This yield curve is inverted, yes, but there were these technical <laughs> reasons why. Our star and term premiums, all that garbage, right? And that's what that was the Fed's main – what they were trying to say is, look, this is no big deal. The bond market's overreacting. There's not that much downside. Oh, don't don't worry about that repo stuff that happened in this September. Yeah, that looks bad, but that wasn't really bad either. And so they were trying to very, very publicly downplay all of these risks. And so they decided, hey, look, we got to do something because the repo market just blew up in our face. And remember when it did it. It did it on the day that, that the Federal Reserve was supposed to do its second rate cut. So the day the Fed was supposed to say, ah, no big deal, another rate cut, all of a sudden the repo market blows up and everybody's talking about repo for the first time in, since 2008, for, really, for, uh, for instance. 
So they had to downplay the importance of their response to it because they didn't want to provoke anything more than that. And the idea was, well, we, we got to do what we always do in the Federal Reserve. What it always does in the, in the post-2008 era is raise the level of bank reserves. And the only way you can raise the level of bank reserves is by buying assets. In other words, quantitative easing or what they call quantitative easing. And so they had to sort of distinguish this QE from all the other QEs, which were supposed to be, you know, help aid and all, you know, stimulus accommodation, all those other things. They didn't want it to look like a big deal. So they had to come up with this not QE. And the way they called it not QE was, oh, we're not buying treasury bonds and notes. We're only trying, we're only buying treasury bills because this is all just a technical issue, not really something anybody should worry about. And so that's really how not QE or QE5 became focused exclusively on treasury bills. And then one of the primary reason was is they didn't really understand what happened in September 2019. All they really knew is the repo market did something. A bunch of people came up with a bunch of different explanations. And to this day, I still haven't seen Federal Reserve Bank of New York come out with an explanation either. They really don't know what happened. And so their response to it was, we got we to gotta raise the level of bank reserves. Something must, something bank reserves, right? And so they ended up buying a whole lot of treasury bills, which if you were paying attention at the time, that was what the market really wanted to hold for because re treasury bills are the best form of uh, repo, highest quality repo collateral. Now for a new audience, I didn't really properly introduce Jeff Snyder here. Uh, for people that are new and are hearing this for the first time, it may sound just like you said that for the first time they heard about repo, there was this domino that fell. And because they weren't paying attention, because they weren't reading your work, Jeff, it may have felt like, oh, it's just one domino. But for years, and I don't exaggerate, for years, starting in, starting in September of 2017, you were writing about one domino after another, tipping over. Uh, May 29th, uh, the inversion of the euro dollar curve, the, uh, the landmine in the economy in the fall of 2018. So for people that were reading your work, it wasn't a surprise because the, the monetary system was tightening, grinding slower. And it wasn't a surprise that it was in September as you had often written the September and March bottlenecks are some sort of seasonal phenomenon in the monetary collateral system. Not a surprise it happened in September. And so they bought up all the treasury bills. They didn't know why they bought them all up. And come March, there was Corona putting extra stress, extra stress on a system that I was already struggling. And of course it all went to hell, but Jeff, it's a new day people, right? Uh, they fixed it, didn't they? Destiny yes, called, six, right? <laughs> Destiny called and the world expected only one thing from the Fed and that is to print and they did. So they made a mistake, but now it's getting better. They're doing it well, better. Yeah, and they don't even say, say they made a mistake. In fact, if you, if you listen to what they're saying, what the Federal Reserve is saying is, look, we, we performed admirably. We couldn't have done it any better because there was no other Lehman Brothers. Uh, we didn't have a systemic failures, those kinds of things. And, and mm -hmm. so as far as uh, most people are concerned, Jay Powell looks like a hero just in the same way Ben Bernanke did. Or at least Jay Powell has positioned himself to look that way in the same way Ben Bernanke spent years trying to do the same thing. And really, it's about the Fed always raises the level of bank reserve because that's all they can do. There's really, that's, there's really no other tools in the toolkit. 
Now, there's different ways in which they can raise the level of bank reserves, but it's all the same thing. So it's not really different QEs. They're just various flavors of the same ice cream. And the same ice cream is just let's raise the level of bank reserves because most people equate bank reserves with money and therefore they believe we're money printing. And what the Federal Reserve is really after is getting people to believe this stuff is helpful and accommodative and therefore think inflationary. If people believe this stuff is inflationary, they'll make it inflationary by acting that way in their own lives. They'll spend more, they'll hire more, they'll do more economic things, and that will make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's really all this is about is trying to get people doing, you know, playing, pretending we're using the printing press to raise the level of bank reserves so that people believe that there's a flood of money coming into the economy and I better do stuff today. Otherwise, the prices of everything are going to go way up. Jeff, uh, you don't often see English words with the M and N in the beginning. And when you do, the M is silent, mnemonic. Yet for some reason, we call the former Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. I bring this up because you bring this up. You, well, you don't bring that up because you're not crazy like I am about those kind of issues. But you do bring up Mnuchin, 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 I think it should be called. You bring up what the Treasury was doing uh, with the TGA account, and you're saying that something is that they were now commit. They're now committing the same mistake accidentally that the uh, central bank was after September 2019. Is that right? Yeah, and it's it's even. I think it's even better than that, and that it's a double accident. If we're looking at what happened in March and April that stopped. The, the, the destructive fire sales and the liquidations and angst and uncertainty and all the bad stuff that happened in March and April. I'm going to bring up a, a graph because I think that might be helpful. Yeah. And I think when we're, when we're looking at what happened, what it wasn't QE6, it wasn't the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve was active all the way from the beginning of March through the middle of March while everything was going wrong. The Federal Reserve didn't hit the, the, the exact right magic number of QE toward the end of March that started that ended the liquidation. First of all, I think it was as we talked as you just talked about before, Emil, we got past that March seasonal quirk, bottleneck, whatever you want to call it. But the other part of it is they think it was more than helpful. Given the nature of what happened in March, which was a collateral bottleneck that caused liquidity to get sucked out of every market around the world, all of a sudden because of the CARES Act later in uh, later in March, and even before that, the Treasury Department had started borrowing heavily because they knew that the government was going to start spending heavily. So in anticipation of massive deficits, the Treasury started issuing gobs of Treasury bills, which just so happened to be the very thing the Federal Reserve had stripped out of the system. The very thing that the market, the repo market, derivatives markets really wanted was access to good quality collateral. And along here comes a deluge of it late in March and early April of 2020. And so accidentally, for reasons that have nothing to do with money and the way the, the, the plumbing works in the Eurodollar system, the, the Treasury Department actually helped solve the crisis or at least stopped it from going any further. But then, you know, look, the Treasury Department doesn't care about these things. All they care about is the government's deficits and borrowing funds necessary to, to, to keep the government afloat. And so by July and uh, June and July of 2020, last year, they began to do what Treasury Departments always do anywhere. You start out by issuing lots of, of short-term instruments because those are easier to sell into the market when you have an unexpected huge deficit. What, I mean, 
March and April definitely fit the bill as far as that's concerned. And over time, you term out those uh, those uh, treasury issuances into notes and bonds because you want to you know you want to borrow it long term. You don't wanna, you want to have to roll over bill you know bills month after month, week after week. So starting around uh, late June, they started the Treasury Department began to cut back on treasury bills. At the same time, they started to sell more notes and bonds. And as they did so, you can see in the chart, the cutting back on bills, bill rates began to fall back again, especially at the lower end, uh, four-week bills and eight-week bills. And not, not pictured here are the cash management bills that have been supplementing government's borrowing. And so you have to, you have to wonder, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with the repo market or money or anything like that, is the Treasury Department making the same kind of mistake that Jay Powell made, you know, six months beforehand. Are they removing treasury bills that do seem to still be in very high demand? And that's that's really the point here. Why are treasury bills still in such high demand that yields on them are, you know, below, the below double digits at the front end, and now across the board, they're sinking down towards zero again? And that's what you're referring to there on the far right edge. More recently, since about when? Since about late January, Jeff, we've seen treasury bills fall. The yields have fallen. Price obviously going up. I actually yes. think it goes back to it goes back to uh, November. Okay, where, you, where I have marked the Pfizer on the chart here. You started to see not just bill yields fall, but short-term note yields fall too, which to me is a signal of uh, risk aversion, risk apprehension. Little, little more concern, need to increase the availability of repo, things like that. But you're right, Emil, January is where the stuff has started to get serious now. And in fact, if you look at bill yields even recently, today, for example, they're getting, they're getting real close to zero. And so you have to ask, what is going on here? You know, we're supposedly in this reflationary trend where everything is going right. We've got vaccines, we've got massive amounts of stimulus, the economy is moving in the right direction, even if sluggishly. Why are bill yields sinking down towards zero? Well, Jeff, you say explicitly, and you say, let me be perfectly clear at this point, I am not claiming there's an imminent monetary disaster suggested by what's happening in bill yields, deep collateral implications over another set of possible global liquidations and fire sales. Well, I mean, why not, Jeff? We are... I would say the economy, I don't know, I would say it's starting to get worse. So we're heading in the wrong direction. Can correct me if you think otherwise. These billiards are fall, falling and we're heading towards our March bottleneck. Maybe, maybe there's a potential for some sort of uh, disorder. Yeah, potential, but not imminent. There's a difference here. And so I think what we're seeing here is fragility. We're seeing the same types of structural fragility that we saw before March of 2020, where the system is saying, you know, yes, we see, we see a high, high degree of risk. We're kind of concerned. We're, we're, we're loading up on bills. We're, we're, we're pre, sort of pre-funding our repo reserves. But it's not like something's going to happen tomorrow. It's, this is next week or something. There's, not, there's no indication that this is a systemic issue that's going to erupt and destroy everything like March 2020 all over again. What it suggests is risk aversion and fragility in the system, especially the collateral chains. To me, that's what it suggests. Now, there are other explanations for what's going on, at least so far is in the last couple of weeks of January. And are you referring to, what are you referring to? Maybe in the public media, the mainstream? Uh, let me 
Let me end your article because I love the way you ended this one. And then we're going to segue to a continuation of this topic in two new articles. You ended this particular arc article with they, quote unquote, aren't crashing the system on purpose. They wouldn't even know how. Wow. Zinger. I love it. All right. Let's move on. Same topic, but two new articles. Now we're going to talk about Hey Bill, Why Now? And Hey Bill, What Is It? Both of them posted on February 1st, Alhambra Partners. Jeff, what did you talk about in these articles or what did you want to reference about more recent times? Yeah, well, let's talk about the other explanation that's been put forward for what's going on in bills. And it's actually a two-part thing that's somewhat related. And it really has to do with, most people are obsessed with the TGA, the Treasury General Account, the U.S. Treasury Department's checking account that they hold with the Federal Reserve. I don't want to get into the mechanics of the TGA versus bank reserves. I think we'll do that, you know, maybe in a future episode because it's important to go through it as it is important to go through what actually happens in these interbank spaces. You know, the difference between Fedwire and chips, for example, major difference. Why are bank reserves not really money? We can go through all that stuff maybe in a future episode. But for right now, when the, when the government spent, when the government issued all these treasury bills last year and then started issuing all these treasury bonds, what happened is a lot of those funds, a bunch of, you know, more than a, a trillion and a half of that money ended up at the TGA, which because the, the U.S. Treasury Department is a non-depository institution, those are, that's, those are bank reserves that are removed from the banking system and held outside of it in the Treasury Department's hands. And then what happens is if the Treasury Department starts to spend or draw down that TGA balance, those funds go back into the banking system as bank reserves, which a lot of people are saying – Oh, my God, that's inflationary. That's money printing coming home to roost. When the Treasury Department starts to spend that money or refund that money is what, what might happen, those re, those, the, the balances go out of the TGA and into the commercial banking system via bank reserves. So the level of commercial bank, bank reserves goes up as the TGA goes down. And so one of the byproducts of that, especially if there's a lot of TGA money going out, is that banks will be flush with reserves, which support, presumably will be you know, idle reserves, which will be dumped into short-term money markets, including U.S. Treasury bills, because Treasury bills can be used with bank reserves. You can, a bank can buy Treasury bills with bank reserves. So we're thinking, many people are thinking that what will happen is the TGA balance goes down, that'll be converted into bank reserves, which banks will convert into Treasury bills. And that's one reason why bill yields are falling. At the same time, we expect bill issuance to decline even further. Because one of the reasons that the TGA balance has to go down is that in July, at the end of July, I believe it is, there's another debt ceiling, you know, another debt ceiling argument to be made. And so far as Treasury Janet Yellen's Treasury Department is concerned, that is a hard limit. And so she's got to get TGA down from 1.6 trillion to a couple hundred billion. So that's a lot of funds that got to be moved out into the commercial banking system. And the way she's going to do it is hopefully, most people are hoping. There'll be another round of quote unquote stimulus, another round of stipends and aids, which the government will spend into the economy. But she's also going to have to do some refunding, which uh, based on the the quarterly statement, the quarterly refunding statement that was just issued this week, they're going to drop a couple of the cash management bills that I think it's the the, the 105 and 154 day cash management bills are going to disappear. And they're also they've also hinted at cutting back on other cash management bills and maybe even more on the Treasury bills, too. 
So mm. we have this dynamic where the, the Treasury Department is going to squeeze the supply a little bit more, maybe even a lot more. At the same time, a lot of the TGA is going to be converted into bank reserves and then converted into short-term money market investments. And so if, according to most people, or according to the, to the conventional explanation, it's a conversion out of TGA into money markets that explains the drop in yields at the short end. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on, these, on this uh, debt ceiling? Why is it even there at this point? It seems like this is not the season for debt ceilings. It seems like this is the season for blowing right through debt ceilings. So in the mainstream, everyone's saying, well, there's this hard debt ceiling. It, it doesn't seem very hard to me. It seems like we blow through it every time here in the United States. And just with the kind of the, the tone, the environment, the economy, I don't know why it seems to be a concern or a worry, but maybe maybe you have other thoughts. I think you answered your own question. It, it's mostly for show, number one, mm. so politicians can act responsible and say, hey, look, we passed the debt ceiling. But I think the real reason is horse trading, right? You, I mean, we all know the debt ceiling is going to be raised, but the very fact of, of the Congress getting together and having to raise it requires a bunch of negotiations. And so it's a way for one party or another party to negotiate over a debt ceiling. Hey, you want the debt ceiling to go up? You got to give me something. Hmm. It's really an opportunity for political horse trading. That's all it really is. And we both know the debt ceiling is going to be raised. And it is no impediment whatsoever to the level of government spending and government deficits because ever since we had a debt ceiling, government deficits have exploded. It's almost, it's almost inversely proportional, right? So that's, it's in no way a limit or constraint but it does create problems. And I think that's really the issue. They want to create problems because that requires horse trading to then solve it. it. It creates urgency that then gives somebody political power to say, look, I'm going to block the debt ceiling upgrade unless you give me what I want. And oh, by the way, this, this debt ceiling thing is going to cause all sorts of problems. That's very disappointing in this age right now that uh, they're playing yeah, these sort I hate of to games. I so cynical when... about it, but you know, that's, that's the rea- you were exactly right. We know that debt ceiling is no ceiling at all. It's really, there's no reason to be anything other than cynical about it. Now, Jeff, you and I have a YouTube show and we have thousands of followers and that's pretty good. But as I often remind the audience, cat videos have hundreds of thousands of followers, meaning if we, you know, we're nothing special. If we know this, if we know that this whole discussion about the debt ceiling and therefore that's why bill yields are falling because the treasury is trying to work their way around it and planning ahead. If we all think that that is a very nice slice of baloney, then there must be a real reason or an alternate, more plausible, more realistic reason that traders in the Euro dollar futures markets and uh, the sovereign bond markets are doing what they're doing. They're ignoring this discussion about debt ceilings. What did you think it might have to do. I, I know you were theorizing that perhaps it might have something to do with, with what Fitch had recently written about. Yeah, I think in one sense, there's a perception that because of these 13-digit government interventions, whether it be the Federal Reserve or the federal government, that whatever ha- what happened last year, as bad as it was, won't matter. That we got through it. It was a <laughs> pandemic. It was a massive recession, the likes of which that bested 2008 in a lot of ways. Worst we've seen since uh, the Great Depression, especially in an employment market and labor market, but it won't matter. And I think that's the perception. And the reality is that when we start looking at the situation, not just in the labor market, but in the financial system, what Fitch was specifically talking about is 
there's a loan loss problem lurking inside bank balance sheets that has yet to come out because so far it's been papered over by these 13-digit interventions. The markets have been reassured by the Federal Reserve. Jay Powell's saying he's going to support corporate bonds and whatever not. At the same time, people are, well, the government stipends, government unemployment, all these other, other uh, entitlements and spending programs have kept things somewhat reasonably afloat. And the idea is that if we do this long enough, the system will heal itself, it will recover, and that there won't be any long-run or even intermediate-term consequences for what are some really striking, really somewhat terrifying massive deficiencies in the economic and financial system. And what Fitch and S&P and Moody's are all saying is we're not so sure. So what happened in the last, part, or the, the last half of last year was the rating agencies put an enormous number of global banks on downgrade watch. What they're really saying is we don't know how this is going to play out either. We don't think it's going to be so easy. Now, what happens when banks get downgraded is they don't just get downgraded. It causes them funding issues. And one of the funding issues in a lot of ways, especially when you get into derivatives and things like that, you have to post collateral. If a bank is downgraded, you got to put up more more collateral to your counterparties because they're now looking at you very differently. They're saying, it doesn't we thought have to you be were, a bank. It yeah, could be an insurance company. Good. Exactly, a three-letter insurance company. Exactly, you're exactly right, Emil. Anybody that gets downgraded, suddenly people look at you differently and demand more collateral from you. And so, if we're thinking that the story is we avoid downgrades, we avoid consequences when the economy recovers. If the economy recovers quickly enough, we'll avoid all the bad stuff from 2020. However, if the economy starts to stumble. We start to look like it's more difficult and not going to go perfectly. That raises the risk that we're going to start seeing some of these bad consequences show up. We're going to start seeing NPLs, on, especially emerging market global bank books. Mm-hmm. We're going to see more ratings downgrades. And so then it would make sense then that there would be demand for collateral ahead of things that would demand more collateral be used inside the system. And not junk collateral, but the best quality collateral. And so from my perspective, what I'm seeing, has the economy started to stumble? I think you referenced it earlier. You know, when we look at the way the way the things ended last year, it was not in the right direction in a lot of places. Europe fell back into recession. The U.S., I mean, 4% growth sounds terrific, but not given where we were. And then the labor market ended last year in reverse. And then even, you know, the January pay, the payroll report that came out today wasn't good either. It was close to a negative. So... Yeah, stumble, economic yeah. stumble. Yeah. We're not we're not accelerating, we're stumbling, which raises the, the, the risk profile and the risk prospects of of starting to really get into these possible negative consequences that have been so far pushed forward. I think people might assume that if you don't have the worst of it during the shock, right? The shock should bring about the worst immediately in a financial crisis. I think that was sort of the case in 2008, even though it started in 2007 and the shock, can, you know, the worst continued into 2009. But I think that's a natural assumption. And I've brought up a, a Brief History of Doom, which is a book by Richard Vague before. And it's kind of a, you know, chicken soup for the soul for economists, where he takes you on a tour of 43 financial crises in, in the six largest economies for the last 200 years. And what he mentions and what you keep reading is the protracted agony 
of the bust. Yes, 2020 was a terrible shock, but historically it's not unusual to see worse things happen a year or two or so later. That's what we talked about once in one of our shows about the Great Depression, is that the ugliness wasn't all in 1929. It kept getting worse. So maybe that's what we're seeing. Jeff? No, there's a public perception that it's like an explosion, right? Mm -hmm. Panic and a break, a a shock. Even the name shock itself lends itself to that interpretation. Or it's an immediate thing, things are bad, and then it starts to go back to normal. And I think we've been conditioned by it, uh, conditioned by the post-war era. We talked about this before, unit roots and all that stuff, where there are no permanent shocks. There are only recessions. So we have a shock that creates a recession, which is nothing more than a temporary deviation from trend. We can recover and go right back to trend as if nothing happened. And the idea is that it's it's really that easy. It's a short-term disruption, nothing else. When, as you pointed out, when you look historically at major economic disruptions, especially when they have a banking and money component, it doesn't go like that at all. 1929 is a perfect right. The explosion or the shock in 29, we didn't get to the bottom until 1933. You know, and it's any other depression before the, that era too. It's the same thing. You have a shock, but it's not the, the shock isn't contained to the immediate you know couple of weeks, couple of months, even a year. They're sort of like a slow motion train wreck. And so that's really, you know, I think there's a mistaken impression about how these things go, and especially about last year, because last year was supposedly all about COVID, all about economic, non-economic function. We shut everything down and we turn everything back on. It'll be just that easy. It sounds like it'll be just that easy. We don't have to factor any of these other things. When what we're already seeing at the end of last year was, it isn't going that easy at all. In fact, we're struggling just to get back to worse than 2008 as long as more time passes. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover with those three articles that you want to bring up before we move on to kind of discussing where this reflation is in reference to previous reflations that we've experienced since 2007? The only thing I'll say briefly is that we've seen the TGA drawn down in large fashion twice before already. And ironically, the last time was in 2019. Between, I believe it was March or April 2019 and July or August, about you know, $275 billion came out of the TGA. And that was, hey, this is going to fix everything. We don't need the Fed to, to cut rates. You know, this, 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 this downturn or this soft patch that Jay Paul is talking about the TGA drawdown will fix it, and then it will be inflationary. And, of course, it, nothing happened there. Now, I know what's, what's, what's going on this year will be two or three times bigger than that, but it wasn't inflationary in 2019, nor was it inflationary when about $330 billion came out of the TGA in early 2017. So we've seen TGA draws before, and it didn't create these kinds of effects. Now, yes, this one will be bigger. But the other thing is we're seeing bill yields fall, even though the TGA balance hasn't even started to decline yet. So I'm more inclined to look at the risk factors, collateral, things like that, ratings, downgrades, lack of supply in bills, you know, Treasury making the same mistake as Jay Powell. Those are the factors I think better explain what's going on in the short end rather than the TGA. Jeff, let us transition from these series of articles to talking about the reflation that's taking place right now since, I don't know, let's say since May. 
And it's quite a re funny reflation in the sense that uh, starting in May, not too long after it, we had the summer slowdown. So that's sort of how, how can that be when we have a reflation and a summer slowdown? But I suppose that will be the message that you'll be telling us from your article here, reaching half a year, what's the complete reflation situation posted February 3rd at Alhambra Partners? Jeff, this is not our first reflation. We've had, this will be our fourth one. Tell me if I've got them right. It was uh, green shoots, global growth, globally synchronized growth. What's our bumper sticker for this one? What do you think? I think it'll have to be scare quotes, right? I know I use scare quotes about too many things, but is is this reflation? <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's kind of in the right direction, but when we compare it to the to the other reflations, especially in the in the uh, financial and, and uh, monetary uh, indications that we use most often, it doesn't even it comes up short in almost every one of those. And so, is it even really reflation ish? Is I don't even know what what, what kind yeah. of a bumper sticker slogan it would be. I think. If we were to if we were to put some put a name on it, it would be hey it's not COVID, yeah vaccine secured something like that yeah and Jeff what you just said is something very important this it's getting weaker each time each reflation is getting weaker uh, green shoots was pretty impressive in a sense i mean it seemed like you know, hey the lot the green sh the, the, the reflation number one actually looked like a recovery in mm -hmm. a lot of aspects there were some things that that, that gave you pause and said that something's not right here but uh, there was momentum there was you know bond market yields go you know there was a lot of things that were going on that made you say for people who thought that was recovery you could understand why they why they associated with it and that was i'm going to call that 2009 to 2010 that was green shoots. Then we had global growth after the European sovereign debt crisis from 2013 to halfway through 2014. And, and that one was pretty good. I guess it was, what was it? It was kind of helped along because Bernanke said, we're going to have QE forever. You know what? Everything looks good. We're not going to have QE. We're going to uh, start drawing back. So that was kind of a okay one. It, it was not as strong as green shoots. And then I thought the, the globalized synchronized growth, it was ironic because while the reflation had some moments that were strong, some impressive points, but mostly it was weaker. You know, what was the strongest? The publicity campaign, that was the strongest. Yeah, the, the term globally synchronized growth itself was supposed to convey that meaning, right? It was supposed to say, Oh, forget about those other two. This is the one we're putting all our chips on. And in fact, the way the official world responded, not just in the U.S., I'm not talking about just Janet Yellen or Jay Powell, Mario Draghi, Haruhaka Kuroda, all of these people were, they really bought into the globally synchronized growth hype. Now, whether they actually believed it or they were just trying to sell it to the public, that's sort of a debate. And in some, in some sense, it doesn't even matter because that's what they were doing. They were saying, look, time's running out on this QE stuff. It's 2017 already, nine years after the crisis. We kind of got to sell this recovery stuff or people are going to start losing faith. There's some and desperation. So, you yeah, know, desperation what, in, the, in the air of, the, of that, I'm not going to call it propaganda, but the marketing campaign. I, 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 yeah. That was my sense. To me, that's why it got to be so hysterical because when you stopped and looked at it, there was absolutely very, very little, the least amount of evidence for 
anything like an inflationary acceleration at that time compared to the other times. And so it was so, so overhyped and everybody really, the mainstream in particular really wanted to jump on board. And I think a lot of it had to do with the desperation that look, it's 2017 and we still haven't recovered from the great recession. Therefore, what are we going to do? What's, what comes after this? And of course, what actually comes after this, where we're going here is that if it's only ever reflation, that means it's not recovery. And so what's going to follow reflation is another euro dollar global dollar shortage. These things go together, one and the other. So if we're stuck in weakening reflations, what we expect is not recovery, not yeah. refl- not inflation. If we're going to continue with our alliteration, you would call it ratcheting as you do in your writing. You have the you have one analogy, the noose, and then <laughs> tightening, and the other one is the ratcheting down. But we'll go with the R. Now, Jeff, that's just your opinion, but you've got some metrics here that you call on, and you say we can't measure the euro dollar itself like dark matter. We have to measure the euro dollar's impact on other things. So what are some of the measures that you turn to to see if this reflation is good? I know one that uh, Janet Yellen and Mr. Jay Powell will come, if they're watching this show in the comments section, they'll say DXY. Jeff, explain that. Well, DXY is the dollar index, and that's one, you know, I think maybe there's misconception about what we do too, is that we, we place too much emphasis on the dollar's exchange value. It's really just one, uh, one indication in a, in a big survey, a broad survey of a lot of indications that suggests what must be going on into the shadow money system that we can't directly observe. And so if we see the dollar going up or the dollar going down, that's not an end-all be-all of what's happening. That's just, okay, is that consistent with everything else? And if we see the dollar going down, we would expect, okay, treasury yields would be rising significantly, the yield curve steepening, euro dollar futures in the longer end selling off. These all There's all these types of corroborating instances that would tell us that in general, the entire euro dollar system is acting reflationary, hopefully as the next step toward, as the first step toward recovery. So if things start to become reflationary, gain enough momentum, gain enough uh, substance, and they're able to be sustained, then reflation becomes recovery. And we would expect to see that in falling dollar, rising yields, yield curve shape, all these other, other indications. So if we start with the dollar, we can't end with the dollar. No. And obviously no. if we see the dollar going up, that's a bad sign, not a good sign. The DXY is approaching the lows of reflation number three, globally synchronized growth, meaning that would be the representative of the easy policy. So that suggests a reasonable reflation on power of globally synchronized growth, which was okay. But the more broadly weighted dollar, not as enthusiastic, right, Jeff? Um, not at all. It's not even not, close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, and so when you, when you account for the euro, as we've talked about before, the euro mm-hmm. and, the, and the British pound in particular, which I believe are, are, are moved, have been, their moves have been amplified by Brexit. The fact that Brexit doesn't look like it's going to be the nightmare that it's been told <laughs> since the vote. Um, so there's a lot of positivity around the euro and the pound that doesn't have anything to do with really what's going on in the global euro dollar system. And so if we remove the at least some of the influence or all of the influence of the euro, you look at the dollar exchange value, and it isn't really moved all that much since it's March extreme. It has moved. It is much, it is lower, but it isn't, it isn't, it isn't, you know, it's not forcefully or unambiguously reflationary lower. 
treasury. And it certainly isn't crashing, you know, which is the narrative you get from the DXY people. That, oh, my God, the dollar's crashing. It's nothing of the sort. Yeah, the DXY looks crashy. The broader one, no. But what about treasury yields, Jeff? Uh, are treasury real yields blowing up, inflating, as the bond route has begun and the U.S. Treasury security just, what, in a conflagration of an inflationary fire, it, in the reflation that's about to take off, Jeff. Is that what we're seeing right now? Admit it, Jeff. That's what's happening. <laughs> well, look, the 10-year U.S. Treasury, the benchmark nominal yield, hit its closing low on August 4th of last year, which means this week being February 4th, it's been six months. And over those six months, long-end treasury yields have been rising. So they have been in the at least moving in the right direction. And sometimes they're described as sort of, oh my God, this is an inflationary nightmare. It's, it's starting to happen. But if we look at, I mean, six months is, a much, is, is certainly a sufficient long enough period where we can start to make some decent determinations about the conviction behind that kind of an idea or whether or not the market actually believes in this kind of thing too. And the purpose of, of in the context of reflation is that, well, let's compare this six-month period with reflation three and reflation two and reflation one if we really wanted to. So how does this initial six months compare? And we look at these various parameters starting with the trend, the 10-year treasury yield. What we find is, yes, interest rates have gone up for six months straight, but in no way like even reflation three or in, in no, not even the same ballpark as reflation two. So if there's any kind of inflation or positive signal coming out of bond yields, I'm not sure what it is. Other than what the, what the treasury market and the rising yields say is that, well, it's not getting worse. I think that's really what we're at. We're not even into reflation. It's the market with these nominal yields rising, uh, basically reflecting on, well, it's not 2020 anymore. and Maybe 2021 will go better. But the probability of 2021 being so a whole lot better than 2020 can't be very much or we'd see more out of the treasury market in rising yields than we have. Inflation, treasury inflation protected securities. They're related to what we were just discussing, the treasury securities. But we did discuss in an episode or two ago that we see inflation rising uh, at a faster rate than the nominal yield. And therefore that means real yields were falling. I think, did you see the latest numbers, Jeff? Not so, not so reassuring, but let's talk about the inflation signal. Is it still what you thought before? Is it still being driven by the consumer prices index and oil and fuel? Yeah, and I think, you know, inflation expectations or specifically the break, the break-evens and tips, which are mm -hmm. the dis difference between the yield, real yield and a particular maturity, say the five-year or the 10-year, and the nominal treasury yield at the same maturity. The inflation break-even or the expected rate that the, uh, the uh, treasury market expects the government to get paid based on what they think the CPI will average out over that period, the break-evens have been rising. And a lot of people that are pointing to inflation are saying, well, look, break-evens are rising and even rising rapidly. And that's true too, but does that? And not only that, break-evens are at multi-year highs, which is a term that always gets thrown around in these periods because it sounds really impressive, right? The highest since early 2019. Well, when you think back to that's 2019, sad. you think that's not. It wasn't really a great that's time. That's sad. That's so disingenuous oh. by the by the financial media that does that. I hope that's only being done by politicians 
and by perhaps people talking their book. But if the media does that, that's just, that's, yeah, it's somewhat it's a failure. Yeah, it's a failure yeah. of your duty as a, a person in the media, the highest in years. We're in a depression. <laughs> All right, go on, Jeff. I'm sorry. No, and so, you know, if we look, if I think, you know, inflation break-evens in particular have been one of the things that the inflation people, the people who are advocating inflation have been hanging their hats on. And so if we compare this reflationist period, the last six months and before, to reflation three and reflation two, what we find is that no different. In fact, the, the long-run five-year, five-year forward inflation rate is basically on the same exact track as reflation three, which, as we just discussed, was the weakest of the bunch. So yes, inflation expectations are rising, but we would expect inflation expectations to rise off a severe trough. That doesn't really tell us much. And the fact that it's not really going better than reflation three, and by the way, reflation three did not end up in an inflationary fire, just to reiterate, um, that's not a good sign for the inflation case either. Let me just underline that point again. I, I didn't think of this earlier. This shock, the reflation number four that we're experiencing should be stronger. It should not be as weak, right? Because we came out of a deep, deep hole. So just like the rubber band, just like Mr. Friedman's plucking model, we should, it should be really. Yeah, symmetrical. Symmetrical. That was the concept that we were, I mean, symmetry, if the the farther you go down, the quicker and faster you come back up. That's, That's really the idea. It shouldn't be weaker every time. It should be stronger. It shouldn't be weaker every time, and it shouldn't be weaker or about equal to number three if the dive of Eurodollar number, event number four, was deeper maybe even than 2008 in certain circumstances. No, you bring that up too. Compared to reflation number three in tips market, it really didn't get too much, other than the extreme uh, extreme points in March – uh, inflation expectations were at their lows about the same as they were in 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other than that really short, short you know, crisis space, it's not like the inflation expectations have had that much farther to come back from over the last six months or so. In fact, that's why following along reflation number three almost perfectly is, is actually a that's, negative yeah. indication, not a positive indication. It's not reassuring. Right, exactly. Uh, swaps. That's another one of your key arrows that you pull out of your Euro dollar quiver when you want to understand where the system is. There are short-term swaps and long-term swaps. And you explained it to me once before that the short-term ones don't take up a lot of space on the bank's balance sheet, right? You don't have to put a lot at risk for a one-year swap, but a 30-year swap, a 10-year swap, that's serious. You're taking up serious space on your, it's not serious. You're taking up space on your balance sheet. More space. It's less efficient. Yes. And therefore, if what we, those are indicative of kind of the risk appetite of the, of the institutions that create money in our modern global economy. And therefore those are the ones that I guess they would be the last ones that we typically see in a reflation to turn around the ones that were, yeah, all right, we're, we're heading in a good direction. We're going to take on more risk with these longer-term swaps. Jeff, do I have that right? And what do we see in swaps? Yeah, you have the basics right, and I think it's it's obviously much more nuanced and complex than that. But overall, that's that's pretty much 
think, you know, I'm happy with that. <laughs> I no, I think I'll, as far as I'll a brief explanation, that Perfect. works perfectly. It's really about you, balance sheet constraints and efficiency and how banks manage, manage their overall balance sheets. And they're a reflection of capacities and efficiencies in those certain dynamics. And so what we'd expect to see is swap spreads decompress as banks take on more risk and more confidence that they have more balance sheet space over the long term. And so we do see that. We see, we see swap spreads decompress in reflation, reflationary periods. But the swap spreads, especially at the 10-year and the five-year maturity, they've been decompressing more at the 30, but that's because they were very extreme low levels, and they're still negative by about 25 basis points. But at the 10-year maturity, which is an important, important benchmark, um, it really haven't moved much at all. There really hasn't there really hasn't been much of a decompression outside of maybe back in you know volatility in April and then over the summer. So over the last six months or so, while you know everything else may be somewhat reflationy, swap spreads have been pretty much pegged. The ten-year spread has been pegged less than five basis points, which is not a whole lot at all. And if you turn to this uh, to this article, everyone in the uh, audience, it's called Reaching Half a Year, What's the Complete Reflation Situation? You'll see a great graph here going back all the way to 2006. You'll see the 10 and 30 year swaps. Mm -hmm. And the 10 is very interesting. It has followed that weaker reflation pattern. The 31, I guess it felt a little bit better about global growth. Number two, it came back stronger there. But let's talk about reflation number three. It looks like the 10-year swap got up to 10-ish, almost, almost. And right now we're stuck at zero. And it, like you said, yeah, it seems to be kind of just... Back to reflation number two, where the 10-year spread was up closer at 15, 20 basis points. Mm -hmm. And so you're exact, it's, it's the ratcheting effect where banks are saying, we're not really taking a lot of... We're not carving out a lot of balance sheet space to take on these risks or manage these risks as from other risks that we're taking on. You also have a couple more graphs here with one being the yield spread between the 10-year and two-year U.S. Treasury security and another one showing the 10-year U.S. Treasury security yield. And you're comparing to reflation two and reflation three in both cases, Jeff... What's, you know, is there any, <laughs> is there any oomph? Well, the yield curve shape, you know, obviously that's something that we should pay attention to because the yield curve, we would see nominal yields rise, but we would also see the yield curve steepen. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen the 10-year yield rise over the last six months, and we've seen the yield curve steepen at various points along the curve, including the two-year 10-year, which is the one most of the public pays attention to at certain times. But yet, when we when, again we classify them or compare them to in context, what we see is they not only has ten-year yields not not increased all that much, the yield curve has steepened, and it's the steepest it's been in years. But it really hasn't steepened all that much at all. And the reason it's been the steepest in years is because we went through that period as we just discussed before, 2018 and 2019, where the yield curve actually collapsed. So we haven't really come back from a collapse at all, and certainly not in a way that would make us think that this is even modest reflation. As you keep pointing out, this is the weakest of the bunch. And so we look at all these yield curve dynamics. That's what the yield curve is saying is that, look, this is the weakest of the bunch. This is, this is, we've had a huge downturn, and then we're not even coming back as quickly as we did back in 2016 and 2017 when we were coming off barely a near recession and the economy was at least moving forward at a relatively decent rate, at least relatively decent compared to the post-crisis period. 
So there are all sorts of these mechanics. And the big one, I think, is the tip's real yield, which isn't even reflationary at all. If we look at tip's real yields, they keep coming down toward record lows and setting them at some, some maturities, which says that, okay, yeah, oil prices are going up, and that might be driving the break-evens, but economic growth, uh, economic growth uh, conditions – it's not happening at all. And if we don't have any sort of real economic growth, how are we going to get any sort of, of, of acceleration, inflation, and recovery? And so when we look at all these things together, it goes back to what we said in the first segment about what's going on at the short end in the bills, risk perceptions. When we look at the rest of the bond market, the rest of the treasury market and money curves, and what they tell us is that, yeah, there's a whole lot out there to be that is less than desirable, which is unusual given – First of all, what, 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 what the common perception is about what's going on right now, but also unusual in the fact that we suffered such a huge setback last year. Why aren't we coming back you know, in an unambiguous fashion? Jeff, we've gone over a number of measures. Are there any measures that we didn't go, go over uh, that you wanted to raise right now? Perhaps GameStop. Is that an indicator <laughs> of such a... Anything I think you GameStop, you know, GameStop and the stock market in general is an indicator of just how screwed up things are. Because you know, here we have today, for example, we have the, today's Friday, the February 5th, and we had the payroll report come out, which was really bad. Second straight really bad payroll report. We've got a 10 million jobs deficit, including 2 million jobs that didn't happen. So we're really 12 million jobs short of where we should be, yet the stock market's at record high. We've got all sorts of, of screwy stuff going on with GameStop and short squeezes and things like that. And it's becoming clear to most people that these things are totally detached. What's stocks, the reality of this current situation, and, of course, people who are you know, uh, proponents of stocks and, and the stock view are saying, well, no, stocks are just looking ahead down the road and saying, as we started off at, that none of this stuff will matter. None of this unemployment, none of this COVID, none of the pandemic. The vaccines will fix the pandemic. The stimulus will fix the economy. And then if we look far enough down the road, things will be really happy and good again. That's really what the stock market is saying, and people – trading in GameStop, what they're really saying is that, yeah, it's, we, can, we can look past the misery of today because tomorrow will be really good. What we're saying is when we look at the bond market, which has been proven correct more often than not, the bond market is saying it's not that easy. You can't just ignore these big problems and think that they'll all just be perfectly fine over the months ahead. And oh, by the way, if you're counting on the federal government and the Federal Reserve as the, as the catalyst to make sure everything goes right, you're going to be very, very disappointed. I'd like to suggest that the stock market is being presented to us in a way that doesn't send an accurate message. And what I'm trying to say is that the S&P 500 is market capitalization weighted, meaning our six, seven, eight top stocks are gaining in value because perhaps people want to put money in dollar-generating monopolies. That makes sense. But if you look at a, a equally weighted, geometrically weighted, I think Value Line does this, and I haven't done this for uh, over a month, but the last time I looked at the, the Value Line geometrically weighted index, which is 1,600 stocks in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, and what it reflects is kind of the median publicly traded North American company. And what did it show? 
it was well below the 2018 highs that were achieved, I think, if it was in January. That, that seems to be like the stock market, the real publicly traded company situation, is that they're struggling and have been for years, as opposed to monopolies, which is what we see in S&P 500. And that's, you know, going back to what we just talked about before with the difference between recession and depression, why depressions aren't short-term shocks, is that a lot of the damage that gets done is hidden. You don't see it because it's the small mom and pop shops that hurt. You know, Google isn't going to isn't going to go out of business. Google isn't going to be shut out from credit markets. But a medium-sized business and a medium-sized industrial business, for example, they're going to have all sorts of trouble maintaining both their cost structure as well as their access to credit. They don't have a Federal Reserve buying bonds and, and support, supposedly supporting the market. Yeah, I know there was the mainstream, you know, uh, mainstream bailout uh, lending program, mainstream. all that stuff, which really didn't. I mean, that didn't work at all. So what? And again, how? Why are these things longer term in nature? It's because a lot of the damage that that does take place, you just don't see it. It's it's hidden. It doesn't show up in the mainstream indexes, which are skewed toward the parts of the system that do very well, regardless of the economic condition, you know, Google and Apple. Yeah. They might take a, a bit of a setback last year, but those, those companies are going to survive. They're going to thrive no matter what it's the rest of the system and how much of this rest of the system that has suffered material damage that we really, that's what we're talking about. And those are the things that the bond market can't ignore because the bond market is tied closer to the actual system. I think I forget who who was always used the term with stocks, calling it the casino, because that's really what happens when stock prices start to diverge from any kind of fundamentals. And GameStop is a perfect example. It really is a casino. It's just a mechanism to transfer uh, paper wealth from one perception to another, as Gordon Gecko said in the famously in the movie Wall Street. That's really all it is. It's not it's not a signal. It's not an in-depth fundamental analysis. It's not discounting future perceptions. It's just simply people trying to gain each other. Rudy Havenstein, Havenstein, the part-time central banker for Weimar, Germany, and full-time social media sensation is the one that says casino and calls it a casino all the time. Wonderful stuff. Jeff, I loved it. Next week, dear audience, we'll be back to three full episodes, three full parts per episode. Uh, Jeff, I'll talk to you next week. And congratulations on a fantastic uh, Buffalo Bills season. You guys did awesome. It's not your fault. Patrick Mahomes, wonderful. Don't be upset, Jeff. You guys did awesome. It was a good season, but it wasn't enough. And we're going we're gonna to have to t- come back harder and take it next year. <laughs>